Welcome to the Theology Bugcast. We're glad to have you with us uh, today, and we've got a special show today because uh, we're 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 having a virtual pugcast. Uh, we're pretending that we're in a, a a pub somewhere, but I know for certain that I've got a libation. I'm I'm raising it right now, and I know Tom's got his. Glenn, Glenn, I'm afraid uh, doesn't have it have his handy. So maybe Lynn can run and fetch you some there, Glenn. We'll see what we can fun. do. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> but as everyone knows, we're in lockdown. We're in lockdown here. I saw a helicopter going overhead a little while ago with machine guns sticking out of it, just to make sure that no one goes outside. Uh, not made by cult. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. It's not that bad yet. But uh, anyway, uh, we're glad that we can do this uh, in this manner. Uh, we're glad that we can. And I've done a number of podcasts this way, but but never with you guys. Yeah, this is, uh, this is I think, a first for me this way. But okay. Everything right now is a first for me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Well, why don't we go around the horn and like we normally, uh, uh, you know, go about the horn, have each of us introduce ourselves. So, uh, Tom, why don't you start? Uh, Tom Price, uh, teach systematic theology and Christian ethics, uh, and both, all of which are taught from the home right now, but Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary is where I tend to teach mostly. So. Right, right. And Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at online Central Connecticut State University, yeah. at least at the moment, and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. And I do have one thing I wanted to let folks know about, just in case they're interested in it. I've uh, begun a YouTube channel, and it, its primary purpose is just for me to communicate with the folks at my church. So it's uh, entitled Good Morning PCM, and I'm conducting a uh, daily uh, study in the book of Proverbs. And I've not been able to get my recording done today. I tried it a couple of times and had some interruptions and so forth, but I do hope to have something up tomorrow for that show. But anyway, if you want to, if you want to jump in on that, uh, I'd be glad to have you. But here we are in quarantine, and Glenn has got the day, and I know that you want to talk about this sort of stuff, Glenn. Uh, we've we've already done the Black Death. Uh, are we going to do a sequel? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you can't get too much of plague. <laughs> so, um, what, what I thought I would talk about in view of the fact that we've got this pandemic, in view of all of the measures that are being taken right now, I thought it would be interesting to talk about how Christians have responded to pandemics and serious epidemics in the past. Right. It turns out we've got a long history of this kind of thing. If you, you go never back. Know by the way, some people behaved today you know, in the church, you'd never know that. Yeah, well, we, we have a lot of really, it seems to me we've got two extremes in terms of how we're reacting. We're either, oh no, oh no, we're all going to die. Stay home, don't go out, don't touch anything, whatever. You've got the sort of panic mode on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have people who are saying, eh, just ignore it, go out, go about, do your business, do your thing, it's all just a joke anyway. And both of them, are understandable responses, and both of them, I think, are really wrong, especially when you are looking at it from the perspective of 
how the church and how Christian leaders have handled this kind of thing in the past. So let, let's go back to the second century. Okay, let, let's start there. There was a plague informal. It wasn't actually bubonic plague. We'll get to bubonic plague later. But there was a, a serious epidemic that was going through the Roman Empire and killing a lot of people. The most prominent physician of the day, the surgeon general of the Roman Empire, as it were, was a guy by the name of Galen, uh, important medical theorist, uh, important physician. And what Galen did when the plague hit is he skipped town and went to his country estate to wait out there, largely because he knew, along with all the other physicians, that there was absolutely nothing they could do about this disease. Anybody who had money ran the nobles, everything else. Um, and even if you didn't have money, if you could, you ran as well. The only exception to this were the Christians. They stayed around and apparently even traveled to places where there was plague in order to tend the sick. Hmm. Now, the reason for this, I think, has to do with looking at the example of Jesus. One of the things that we know about Jesus is that he was a healer. Um, and although we don't have the same kind of miraculous abilities Jesus had to heal, the idea was, well, Jesus dealt with the sick with his abilities. We should be doing the same thing. So the net result is that the Christians went out and tended the sick. Galen himself comments on this. Galen found Jews and Christians curious. He was he thought that they had a lot of things about them that were just simply naive. Mm -hmm. But he found them at least intriguing. And when it comes to this particular point, he noted that the Christians were absolutely fearless. They had no fear of death at all because they believed that if they died, they would simply go to a better place. Yeah. So that was Galen's observation of the Christians during this plague. A century or so later, there was another plague known as the Plague of Cyprian, named after a bishop who gave us our best description of the plague. And in the Plague of Cyprian, what you see happening there is even more extreme. If someone became sick in a household, they would drag them out and dump them in the street because they were so afraid of having people who were dying around them because they were afraid they would catch whatever it is that they caught, that they literally would dump their family members in the road to die. You know what's um, coming to everybody's mind who's of a certain age at this point. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bring out your I'm, dead. I, I'm not dead yet. Um, but... The, the, the comments are, you know, the, the, they said the, they weren't even bodies, they were dirt, is how they were viewed. Uh, or carcasses, I think is one of the words, that, one of the ways it was translated. Once again, the exception was the Christians. The Christians went out and tended the people in the streets who were dying. Mm. And, uh, and again, the reasoning is, you know, there was one of them who said, you know, you know, I, death comes to everybody. Martyrdom is really common. And frankly, it doesn't matter to me whether I am martyred by the sword or by this disease. You know, they acted once again completely without fear and without regard 
to their own lives, knowing that in the end, they go to something better, even if they do die. Now, there, I'd like to stop here and just think a little bit about this, because uh, I think, you know, the three of us are aware of uh, Rusty Reno's uh, comments over at uh, First Things about keeping the churches open. He's taken a lot of heat for that. I know that he expected it. Um, I, it, I think what, what, I'm, what I struggle with in this regard is that the difference between what you just described and what we see today is uh, the legacy of Christianity in the very fact that we have institutions now that take care of the sick and the hospitals. In other words, now, they had, they had doctors like Galen, uh, but they didn't have kind of the systematic uh, approach that Christianity has given to the world in terms of, you know, when you think of hospitality, hospitalers, hospitals, yeah. there's, a, there's a legacy there. Uh, there. You can see it. You can see the genealogy of morals, as, as Nietzsche would like to say. <laughs> yeah. But in this, well, you can trace and, it back and, to and the you, church. And you also have a kind of a different set of issues with how to apply wisdom. Um, I think at a time when you know certain things are not going to maybe go away because of advancements with the gifts, the good gifts that have come from knowledge that has increased mm-hmm. through through science and things like that. So, I mean, some people are thinking, okay, do I just wait this out a little while? Maybe a vaccine will come and I don't put my family and my neighbor at risk just to go comfort someone. Um, or do I just go do all that, do all these things? just trust the Lord with the outcome. And so I think people sit on that kind of, okay, where do I go with this? Do I, you know, do I kind of trust in some of the, the good gifts we've been given because they have been advancements from Christian insight and have brought us to a different wisdom um, setting. But on the other hand, um, you know, are we, are we not able or are we missing something on the ministerial end, you know? So, I mean, that's really where I think a, a lot of people who want to be faithful, but they don't want to put a lot of neighbors and their families, they don't want to martyr everyone around them just to be <laughs> a saint. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Chris's point is, is exactly right here. The essential difference is that they had no one helping them. The people who were dying in the streets were dying alone, abandoned by family. They were being treated literally like dirt. And the Christians in, the, in this circumstance, the Christians said, this is just simply not right. And so they went out and helped them, tended to the sick. Now, the other thing to note is something that Rodney Stark mentions in The Rise of Christianity. He says that, you know, you have to remember that basic nursing care can really decrease mortality significantly. And so it may be that the Christians going out to do this, they genuinely saved lives, maybe at the cost of their own, but they saved other people's lives in doing this. And it's because of these kinds of things, these are among the things that led uh, to the growth of the church. Christianity expanded because of Christian compassion and frankly, fearlessness. Now we we are in a different setting now it isn't the same thing. People aren't dying in the streets alone, abandoned, and everything else. We do have other institutions. Luther will talk about that, but we'll get to him in a minute. 
Okay, Tom, and, you were going to say something? And, well, and and likewise, a point we we kind of we we uh, mentioned we hinted at a little earlier is the contribution of Christianity to the the hospital and the kind of care that people do risk and uh, their lives to serve others with. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing lar a large scale representation of that worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. That wasn't necessarily so. As you mentioned, when people got sick, they threw them to the streets. They didn't have this kind of institutional, nor did they have the, the, the advancement of knowledge that, that uh, a grounding of creation in a logos would have, would have eventually helped. Um, you know, put in place for for people to make progress with this without having to risk so many lives. Yeah, and what, what most people don't real, realize is that the entire idea of a charitable institution is a product of Christianity. Mm -hmm. You had individuals who gave alms to the poor. You didn't have any kind of systematic poor relief. You had individual physicians who took pay, but you didn't have hospitals. You know, all of these kinds of things are a product of the church. Mass education, product of the church. You know, we can go on and on and on with, here, with this. Yeah. You know, yeah. One of the yeah. things that I, I think about in this respect uh, has to do with uh, the church and its ability to, I think, uh, redeem singleness in a sense. And what I mean by that is, is uh, you know, I, I'm a father. I've got a wife. I've got children. Now my children are all grown. So we're at kind of a different stage in, in sort of, but if, if I, if this were 10 years ago, um, I would, I would like many fathers say, I don't want to put myself in a situation that will harm my children. Um, and I think that's reasonable. I think, um, you know, there are sort of you know, concentric circles of concern as this, as the book, you know, puts it, put it, I can't remember who wrote that, but I, I think there's some, that's a good point. And I think this actually reminds me of a Lake Wobegon story. Remember Lake Wobegon and, and yeah, you know, Garrison yeah. Keillor? Yeah. <laughs> he tells this story about, uh, you know, uh, it's a pastor, who was his, what was his name? The, the Lutheran pastor. Inkfist. In Inkfist. Yeah. <laughs> pastor Inkfist. Uh, he he's put on a guilt trip by his by his his uh, church council about his vacation, and so you know he's magnanimous. He says, "I don't need to take a vacation." You know, I, you know anyway, uh, he comes home to break the news to his wife, and his wife says to him, "You know, the great martyrs all died alone. <laughs> they didn't take their families with them." <laughs> <laughs> now at a at a gathering of some folks from my church and another church the other night. Uh, uh, we had a young woman who was single, and she raised an interesting point. She said, well, you know, there are, there are some of us who are single who could be available if, you know, called upon to go and visit those in need, you know, because, you know, we're in a different situation. We're in a position where we wouldn't have to think about our children or our husband or whatever, you know. And I thought, you know, that's, that's probably the way the early church thought about this, too. Yeah, I don't have any specific records uh, that would indicate that, but it wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, the entire point, if you read uh, Timothy about the widows, um, the widows were actually supported by the church specifically to go and to go places where the male leaders couldn't go to deal with other women uh, and so on. That would have been uh, outside of the uh, acceptable sphere for men to get involved. 
So it wouldn't, the, the fact that they are already thinking in those terms, who can we tap into uh, to do this? And they're specifically aiming at widows who don't have the responsibilities, other kinds of responsibilities to family, suggests that that idea may very well be uh, uh, one that they were following. And, and it, I think it's, it, a, you know, go yeah, ahead, Tom. I was going to say, and it kind of matches the Pauline notion that, you know, okay, in the, in the issues of service to others, you know, that's where he put the issue of, okay, I wish you were all like me, you know, where I could basically die at any moment and I'm not concerned so much about the cares of the world. But then he did bless the other. It doesn't negate mm -hmm. those that are conforming to the goods of the created order and their fulfillment family, um, taking care of those who are, who are, who, who are, you know, under their immediate care and the things like that. But it does make a little more sense of, what Paul is saying when he said there's a certain kind of ministry that offers a certain flexibility should death come quickly. Right. And I think, you know, everybody knows I'm Mr. Household, but I, 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 I do recognize, I do, I think, uh, and I'm grateful for it, that hospitals, universities, those are two institutions that I don't think we'd have if we didn't have, you know, monks and single people uh, serving, you know, uh, to help found those institutions and, and get them up and running. Yeah, that that's historically observable. I mean, that's just that's a simple historic fact. You know that that hospitals, universities, those are the two main institutions, I think. But uh, they were started, run, administered all of that by celibate clergy. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout the Middle Ages, and then that becomes the foundation for the modern institutions. Now, if you move forward, we can actually get to the era of plague. Of course, I'm anxious to do that. Um, you got your plushie? Uh, no, unfortunately, I left that at home. Oh, you um, should have brought it. Yeah, well, actually, it's even worse than that. The, the, the plushie is under quarantine. <laughs> oh no! It's been contaminated. It's it's in my office on campus, and they are not letting me on campus. I oh, cannot. My. I can't go back and rescue him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a cross to bear. But um, <laughs> there there was a plague that hit the. Well, it's known as Justinian's plague. Um, Justinian was trying to reconstruct the Roman Empire to rebuild it after it had largely fallen apart. And one of the key reasons he failed was because plague hit. And it wiped out tens of thousands of people in Constantinople. But it also spread across Europe all the way to Ireland. Uh, and it actually wiped out the second generation of Irish saints after Patrick. Um, a lot of the, the, the great saints in Irish history die of plague in the 540s, I think it is. Um, so it was a, you know, a Europe-wide epidemic, quite possibly a pandemic. And even in that circumstance, you see Christians out and serving, which is one of the things that's going to contribute to the growth of Christianity in Europe. Okay, so that, that's going to be one of the, what I would describe as the ancient plagues, the, the big three ones from the ancient world. When you get to bubonic plague, the Black Death that, that we talked about before, Luther had some really interesting advice. Somebody asked him, is it legitimate to flee from plague? He said, well, yeah, you can do it. But he said that what he thought was the best approach and what he was going to do was he was going to follow all of the recommendations of the medical people of his day. 
He was going to fumigate. He was going to take whatever medicines were appropriate. He was going to do all the things that they told him to do. He was going to stay in, he was going to stay in isolation from people so that he was responsible neither for his own death nor for anyone else's. And he adds, by the way, and if it is my time to die, God will know where to find me. But he adds to that, if I am needed, if someone needs comfort or needs the sacraments or whatever, if I am needed, I will go where I am needed because that is the service to neighbor that God has called me to. This is a a very broad paraphrase here. But his point was, he isn't going to do anything that's going to take unnecessary risks because he doesn't want to be responsible for the loss of anyone's life, his own or someone else's. But at the same point, he is not going to isolate himself to such a degree that he will fail to carry out the ministry that God has assigned to him. If it's his time to go, God will find him wherever he is. So he, has, he need have no fear in going out to minister to people who need his ministry. He won't do this unnecessarily. He won't do this irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. But he will also not hesitate to do it in the, in the name of, uh, out of fear or in the name of some sort of um, uh, fake piety that he doesn't want to be responsible for people's death. Well, he, maybe he's responsible for their death by not helping them when he's called to do that. Right. You know, when I, when I think about, you know, Luther, uh, but also Chesterton and other really... Um, marvelous personalities from the history of the faith. You just wonder what would those guys be like if they, or what, what would they have done with something like a blog, or you know, with a, with YouTube? <laughs> How many and, and followers it, would Luther have on YouTube? <laughs> well, I, and, it, and it's and it. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I've always sort of wondered what Luther would be like on Twitter. but i guess what i'm getting at is that you know we're we're in a situation today that's so unprecedented here we are separated by miles uh and we see each other and we're talking to each other i was on a conference call earlier today and we had a person from from dallas we actually actually had a couple of guys from dallas we had a guy from the united kingdom you know we had this conversation it was in real time there was no delays i i remember I remember, you know, back in the day in the late 60s, early 70s, you guys remember this, you know, you'd say, we have a satellite connection. It'd be like Walter Cronkite. And there'd be like a two second delay between, you know, people speaking to each other, you know, and they'd be talking on top of each other. We talk on top of each other all the time. It's just, but that has nothing to do with the technology. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. But let me just finish this thought, Tom. But I guess the thing is, is that here we are, in a situation where we can do exactly what Luther did and still communicate, still minister. Right. And I think one of the things that we need to be really thinking about hard right now are, well, you know, we have an epidemic of loneliness in the country as it is. Um, You know, one of the reasons, if you actually take a look at the numbers, the people who are most likely to commit suicide are people in our demographic. And it's because, you know, when you, when, you, when you talk to them, when you take the surveys, you ask them, do you have friends? The answer is usually no. 
know, there, there is nobody that they're really connected to. Um, there are people who are, you know, desperately in need of, you know, either, you know, some form of social contact, um, either by temperament or for any number of reasons. And what worries me about this is if you've got people like that, especially people who are high touch particularly, how do you actually minister to them? Do you just say, well, you know, uh, tough luck, you gotta, you gotta just suck it up and, and go with it. Or do you break social distance? What do you do? One of the things we need to be thinking about is how we can use the technologies we have, even something as primitive as a telephone, um, to reach out to people who maybe they're not in our, our usual immediate circle, but who might need some sort of, of human connection that isn't getting it otherwise. And we've got plenty of technologies and ways of doing that now. Yeah, and, and, uh, interesting note. I, I want to follow up one thought from the Luther thing just real quick before I forget is, is how much natural theology Luther was actually holding. That's a little right. uh, joke, especially to the theological world, because everybody thinks the nominalist Luther got rid of it. And no, he didn't. And there's an ex mm -hmm. exhibition of it. Um, um, the, the other hand, I think, uh, Glenn, you're right on. And I think we, we talked a lot about the kind of ways in which technology redefines reality. Um, um, interrupts things, um, some of the dark side, but here's the light side of it. Um, we're, we're at a time in which our capacity, not in the fullest sense of embrace, but in a sense where we can both continue not to put our neighbors at risk, but widen through our imagination and the gifts of good knowledge, um, use technology for the glory of God, because I do think this insight is from the Logos, which allows us to do these amazing things. And when oriented towards the other objects of love in the right way, we're not manipulating, we're actually serving. So this is a moment at which the positive side of what we've talked a lot of the negative side can be emphasized. Here's a place where through imagination, through commitment to the full Christian vision, and then through these, this good grace of knowledge, we can reorient things into the service of places that has never happened before. Um, you know, as I said, I can, you know, the podcast itself blows me away. I mean, someone in the middle of Australia or at the, the you know, certain points of Africa can tune in any, you know, any time the conditions being right. Um, and here's a place where you can reach your ministry into a lonely world in places that yeah people are cut off and i know because some of the some countries like italy and stuff have such you know strict lockdown and people are on machines they can't but the fact that you could even make some kind of connection to another human and if technology serves in that then we're we're widening our ministry and our witness so and and yeah it also forces us i i also thought two other things i, I don't want to be random here but um, two other things came to mind in all of this. It's, uh, Glenn, that point that kind of the bringing our focus back onto service in this context, um, calling someone we haven't thought about maybe, or someone we know suffering, or, or at least sending them a note, and anything just to keep up. But then also Chris's thing with the household. I mean, you're seeing 
every, everyone's in their house. <laughs> and we're seeing there's limited resources and there's jobs going away. Well, what is the perfect place to start contributing to all those things that are needed but from, from the house? I don't want to go off on that tangent, but if we're in this long enough, I think, I think there, the, all of the things we've talked about as a show are starting to show their wisdom because in a moment of intensity like this, they conform to reality versus not. Anyway, that was a lot of stuff in one chunk of a, of a statement. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that uh, the people are looking for things. A uh, couple of thoughts quickly. Uh, you know, this whole idea, by the way, the piano in the background, my wife teaches piano from home over the internet. So she's in the other room. So if you, that, that music you're hearing is her it teaching. Adds, it adds to the <laughs> aesthetic. That's right. So her, her business hasn't stopped at all. In fact, she's picking up students now from around the country. Um, <laughs> nice. But the, uh, the, thing about, the thing about this whole you know, technology, the downside, it's powerful. And anything that's powerful in the hands of a fallen person, it, it can be dangerous. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that, you know, that it's only oriented toward evil. It, it may have a kind of... Uh, you know, there may be an ease at which, in which uh, things could sort of slide into that. But what comes to my mind is uh, Galadriel's words to Gimli in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, she's speaking to him, and uh, they're, about, they're about to leave Lothlorien. And, and as, you, as I know both of you know, that elves and dwarves don't like each other very much. And uh, she was very suspicious of him, and, she, and he was very suspicious of her. But they... Uh, they kind of warm up to each other. And as, as they're departing, uh, she, she says to him, this, this very regal elfin woman says to him, may your hands flow with gold, but may gold have no hold upon you. And think about that. That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about technology. May you have the power to use the technology, but may the technology have no power over you. I think that's what we should aspire to as Christians. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, in, in the utilizing it's the gift side, which is exactly that. What has it been given to us for? And what is, again, there, there's a lot of steps here. We talked about there being a created and mortal order. Technology has to follow something of that in order to do what it does. And therefore, it shows that we have... It, it, it almost exhibits some of our being made in the image of God as taking creation, cultivating it, and look at the things that develop from that. It's, it's incredible. I mean, talking to everything from healing people through medicines to the ability through, you know, we're not omniscient, but analogously through this medium, which is corresponding to the Logos of creation, which corresponds to the eternal Logos, we are able to connect anywhere in the world right now. And now, like uh, you both have said, quite quickly rather than with a lot of delay. It, it, you know, I don't doubt that it, probably in my youngest son's lifetime, he will see this dimensional, you know, where the image will be Chris sitting on the couch in the living room, even though he's there. You know, I, may, I mean, I may, you know, I may be ahead of the game, but I used to dream of this very thing when I, in the 70s when I was a kid, being able right. to look at people and talk to them. Right. Um, so with all that... We have that, that aspect of, okay, there is a good gift here. It's like gold. It's beautiful, and it's a good thing. 
yes, if it becomes something that is, is about our will dominating things and not serving things, then we end up in the bad place. But I'm not so hopeless, and I don't read this outside of, uh, of a theology that is hopeful. And so therefore, I see these things as goods and can be reoriented along with our loves as they're reoriented towards Christ and all things in him that we can actually use them to serve our neighbor, love God and love our neighbor. And it doesn't replace the other things, but it may allow us to, to both minister in ways where the smallest things that would have put a saint at risk in the old days may not have to put everyone at risk and we can minister more. Maybe there is a moment at which we do need to jump the hurdle. And, you know, Carl Barth used to talk about the command in the moment. He said, of course, there is the command, but there is the command in the moment. There is that moment at which sometimes your call is just you have to jump that hurdle into martyrdom, right? right, right. Um, but maybe not the wisdom is, is that in not knowing where to go with that and not putting a bunch of other, making martyrs of other people when it isn't their, their particular moment, we, we can use wisdom. And then we've got a good gift here. You know, how do we how do we use it for the glory of God and the service of God? Yeah, I had a a friend years ago by the name of Ray Hammond, uh, who was one of these prodigies. He was a uh, black guy, African American guy from Philadelphia. He was he went to Harvard when he was sixteen years old. He's one of those kind of guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but he went on and got his medical degree. So he got his MD. <laughs> and then he went back and then he got his uh, MDiv so that he could be a pastor <laughs> too. So he's one of those kind of guys. But anyways, I was talking to him one time. He was still practicing medicine. He planted a church while he was practicing medicine. Wow. And I said, Ray, you know, you know, tell me about, you know, you know, your life as a doctor and, he's in, and healing people. And you now you're kind of doing, you know, the healing of the soul and the healing of the body. And he, and he said, well, you know what, you know, I, I don't think that doctors actually heal anybody. This was an interesting thing for him to say. He said, bodies heal themselves. The hmm. thing that a doctor does is he tips the balance in the favor of the patient. Interesting. In other words, he's referring to the, the self-healing character of our bodies, you know, hmm. that as, as they're made by God to heal themselves, a doctor is like working with God, even wow. as he's using medicine uh, yeah. to, to do his work. He's, He's, as he's saying, tipping the balance in the favor, just kind of giving a little bit of an edge to the patient. I thought it was a fascinating way to talk, think about it. Yeah, and there's a, the, you, you see the service character of it. in that, that, That's sort of the show we did a long time ago about technology, Heidegger versus Augustine, right? That would have been the Augustine, is when, when, it, when the objects that you're orienting technology towards is in the service of the gift that is given. There is a real gift there and it is given. Then you're, you're, you're doing the Lord's work, right? You're, you're, you're called to have dominion and cultivate, right? This is what that is. It isn't about you playing God. It's about you serving God and serving your neighbor. Um, and, and so that's completely different than the kind of thing Heidegger was worried about that, that technology had become about us playing God. And, and so we're in that episode, it's us trying to, to be almost a creator rather than, than working with the creator to with the givens that the creator gave the body able to heal itself. So what, what are we doing? Well, we're, 
coming along in a minute in a you know a help meet or a ministerial sense like the spirit does to us in carrying out this work we're being able to be part of god's healing purposes Yes. Yeah, so the question that i think we're really confronted with is um i i'd say twofold uh first of all about ourselves how secure are we in god you know when you look at the early church these were people who had you know people who ran into the plague rather than running away from the plague were people who were completely secure in their position in christ they knew that if they died didn't really matter because they just went someplace better they were like paul you know to depart is better by far and they genuinely believed that they genuinely lived it and that is what enabled them to do what they were doing with the result that you know whether it's in martyrdom in the usual sense of the word or by martyrdom by disease it didn't matter in both cases it served to advance the kingdom which was their overriding priority the second question that's a follow up on that is that if we have the right view of our own mortality in other words we're going to die it's just the question of when and how bad okay it's going to happen um but our death is ultimately in god's hands and when it happens it isn't truly a tragedy for us if we actually have that outlook how does it change how we deal with our neighbor and what is the question well the question that i think we need to be asking right now is really what does it mean to love our neighbor in the middle of a pandemic especially when there is so much garbled information coming out about what the pandemic how bad it is and everything else um what what does loving our neighbor actually look like under these circumstances um again starting with the foundation that you know do you really have your security in god or is your security in your life in this world yeah there uh there are a couple of things that come to mind uh with with what you just said glenn um one of them being the fact that uh you know the the early christians genuinely believed something that that now maybe not in every case maybe, maybe we could say that they struggled with doubts like we do and that kind of thing but when you have uh the trump card of death taken away from the from the enemy whether we think of the enemy as the devil or the state or whatever, that trump card is no longer uh, something that could be played. You're free. You know, you can just do what you think you need to do. You don't feel, you don't, you know, it's like, you know, when you think about the resurrection, uh, there are many ways to think about the resurrection, but one of the ways to think about the resurrection is, is, um, that the devil has played his best hand, which was the death hand, and Christ rose. Now what? <laughs> you know, you've done your worst. Now what are you going to do? You've been defeated. Uh, death is the, was, was your most powerful weapon, uh, yeah. but life is more powerful. Right. So, there, so there's that, and I think that's something that if, we, if it really thoroughly saturates our way of looking at things to mix my metaphors a little bit i think um that we're able to 
to do what those early Christians did. They really, they really looked at, the, at things that way. The other thing is, is when we talk about loving our neighbors, um, you know, I go back to Paul's uh, statements regarding the body. Like when I think about my wife, my wife is a very warm, affectionate, and likable person. And uh, I am not as gifted in those qualities. <laughs> you could have just stopped with, I am not. <laughs> so, so like, like if, if, if my wife goes to somebody's house with a casserole, they open the door and smile wide, widely and, and welcome her in. If I go to the house with a casserole, they call the cops. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> what are you up to? What are you, what's, your, what's, your alter, you know, what's your hidden agenda? You know, so I think we need to be a little bit realistic uh, about how love gets expressed through our particular gifts. You know, uh, you, early on in my ministry, I kind of had an idea that I should behave in certain ways and then, I, and then as I observed how people responded to me, I realized, you know what? This is not working for me. <laughs> this is just not working for me. I'm just not the sort of person that people can, can hear me say certain things or do certain things and, and sort of receive them well. My wife, on the other hand, you know, they take it in the right way every time. So what does that mean? I think particularly for, for men, particularly for men who maybe are of a more intellectual sort of uh, – you know, uh, sort of disposition. Um, what what does that mean for us? Uh, I'll just leave it at that and see if you guys have any thoughts. I'll let Glenn well, go with that. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think that it's easy for me to stay in my comfort zone which is in sort of the intellectual arena and teaching and speaking and things like that. Now, I find it rather strange that it, the, according to most surveys, the most common fear in America is public speaking. <laughs> More people list public speaking as an item of fear than list death, um, which the weird thing about that is it suggests that they would feel better being in the box than giving a eulogy at a funeral. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I don't get that. That's one fear I absolutely do not have. Yeah, I, you know, I, I am, I'm very, very comfortable in those kinds of situations. And the hazard for me is to say, you know, this is what I'm gifted at. This is what I'm good at. This is what people respond to. I'm going to keep doing this. And I'll leave the other thing for other people. And to some extent that, that is in, in normal circumstances, that may be the right answer. I'm not sure it's the right answer in our current circumstances. You know, I think we're in a situation, even, even under normal circumstances, I think it helps us to get out of our comfort zone. It stretches us. We learn new skills. We learn new abilities. We didn't know we had all of those kinds of things. Where we are right now, we are in kind of an unprecedented situation, and I think it may be asking us to do things that are unprecedented for ourselves, um, like I said, stepping into areas that we would not normally do. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure yet what that looks like. And, I mean, again, I think, I think some of the gift of our time is the gifts of knowledge and the byproducts of grace. And so... I mean, I, I think 
there's a lot of arenas like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor of theology and philosophy. I'm not a doctor of medicine. So mm. yeah, I can go hold someone's hand should that be needed. But that is not some, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to go in and try to, to, to deal with things that the current world situation has, has given the precedence to people that have known how to do it, you know, with more wisdom than I would have. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, it, we are dealing with, you know, a whole different set of contextual issues, I guess, here. Um, on the other hand, if you, you know, your neighbor needs you in a loving way, that could take, that's, that is always, that, that's not just about a plague or a situation, that's always. I mean, you don't know what happens in the middle of the night if you get a knock on the door and there's a crisis your neighbor has, someone has a gun and they're, they're got a child in the front yard, what do you do? I mean, that's the same question that we have. And, and so I think that was even why, you know, Bart always took the command of the moment. You don't know what that looks like, but it needs to always be ultimately the what wisdom question of, is this the hill to die on? You know, um, is, this the, is this the hill on which I need to run in with neighborly love above all things because I'm loving God first here, you know? Or is it one in which my neighborly love has a different shape that has to consider different levels and the context you know i mean you you do have an episode in which i could what are the ways in which i can be supportive of the medical community to take care of that end of things while i'm calling people who are in the hospital where they can talk or at least listen to me tell them i love them i'm praying for them and if they need to stay on the phone i'm with you you know um, that doesn't put me at risk my family at risk and i haven't lost anything in terms of ministry and yet I'm not pretending to care for a certain set of wounds I can't, you know, address. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions that unpacks, but I think yeah. the, the question isn't different than, in some senses, it's pressing, but it's not different than any moment at which there may always be that situation in which we are called to override every other concern and, and, and love our neighbor in loving God first. Okay, let me, let me give you an, one example that I think is, is kind of remarkable. I've seen reports coming out of China that the house churches in Wuhan broke curfew to go around to minister to people and to pray for people. And whatever you may think of miracles in this day and age, a lot of people got well, you know, with, with the prayers of the Wuhan church. And it was so noticeable that apparently the Chinese Communist Party actually praised the house churches for their action in violating curfew or violating quarantine, excuse me. That's really pretty remarkable if the reports are accurate, and I've heard it from several sources. On another level, though, I'm, I'm not even thinking about the medical side of things. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a historian. I don't even play one on TV, okay? So, <laughs> so, I, so I, I'm not about to try to, to do any kind of medical interventions or things like that. But most of my neighbors aren't sick. Yeah. And, you know, I've got an elderly neighbor down the block. You know, why can't I walk down the block, knock on their door, and say, you know, stand 10 feet back, and say, hey, you know, just wanted to check up on you. How are you doing? We're going to go to the grocery store. Do you need anything? Can we pick sure. up anything for you? Can I pray for you? Yeah. Sure. You know, yeah. 
you know, under normal circumstances, I would look at that and say, yeah, that would be a nice thing to do, but I would never do it. Maybe I need to do things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right on. And even at a time where we don't yet know what could possibly harm the 80 year old, even if you called them and you haven't called them before first (laughs) and then said, you know, or if you don't know the number, yeah, knock on the door, leave a note, write a letter. That's a lot. That's a lost art, isn't it? A handwritten letter to your neighbor. It right. says, you know what? We're going to the store. Is there anything we can get for you? You know, don't worry about money. We'll take right. care of it if we can. You know, hey, that that actually right there. There's there's a first thing. You know, and right. you know, you knock first. If you don't get an answer, you put a note there and leave your number. And right. those are ways. Yeah, you're, you're. I think Glenn, I think you're right on the money in terms of using our gifts and our imagination to serve those especially those that are impacted heavily in this time and as the elderly in particular um you know i know even you know with my parents it's it's hard to you know they're they're in their 70s mid 70s it's still in a risk cat we're all in a risk category but they are according to you know some of the wisdom out there right now or knowledge out there right now and having people do that kind of thing is a huge ministry and service of love because it, it really puts comfort to them that, you know what, hey, I don't have to go bear this burden myself and put myself at a higher level of risk when, when others can't. And again, I mean, Chris, you tapped in earlier, a lot of the single people in particular who don't, don't necessarily have family around, but they want to be doing something for others. Otherwise, they're just sitting in self-isolation. Right. Here's a ministry grabbing right. you know what you can and and helping people I'm, I'm sure the church would would be all of the churches we're a part of would be first and at the forefront of wanting to help find ways to help get resources together to help to to help right. people in that area yeah i think uh in fact i remember hearing something i think it was from from, from finland um where elderly people <laughs> were being kind of matched up with single younger people you know, sort of, you know, they were both kind of without family. Yeah, yeah. And there was a connection being made. I don't know how it was happening. I don't know if it was the state. Well, well it was. It wasn't in the sauna, so that's probably <laughs> good. that's probably good. Right, <laughs> right. It's probably a good thing, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, facilitating this kind of stuff uh, is great, and I think, uh, I guess, my only my only thought early on with regard to raising the question. Uh, is that in, in the sort of the panoply of, of you know sort of gifts? Um, it's true that we all have you know sort of dispositions or sort of inclina- inclinations that that sort of direct us in certain ways. Uh, but I th- I think you've done a good job, Glenn, of pointing out that that shouldn't be a straitjacket. That shouldn't keep us from doing things that just need to be done. And if we're the only people that we know of that can, can do that, then maybe we should just rise to the occasion and do it. Yeah. So the, the question becomes in my mind, you know, at this point, we, you know, we've got all of these situations where it varies from state to state. Some of them are in, in near lockdown. They're talking about closing state borders you know, to travel. There are all kinds of things that are going on. Um, the, the question that we're going to have to deal with sooner or later is to what degree 
do we submit to the dictates of the state if it means that we cannot fulfill our responsibilities to our neighbors? And I want to put it that way because I don't want it to be, you know, a matter of this is what I want to do or this is what I'd like to do or it's my right to do this or anything like that. Our responsibility is to love our neighbors and love means practical service to them. So how do I do this with wisdom in light of the best medical information that I have and within the framework of the state's rules and regulations and at what point do I allow the state's rules and do, do I discard the state's rules and regulations because it's interfering with my responsibility to my neighbor? Those are the kinds of things we're really going to have to struggle through. Yeah, I think if, if that, this continues. Yeah, that's the thing. If this continues, I think there's just, there's going to be a point at which I think we're going to have a sense that okay, this is not this is not real. I mean, we got to we got to make sure that we're not so focused on this particular problem that we're not uh, tending to other problems. You know, one of the obvious ones is the economy. I mean, we, we need to work, we need to trade in order to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were all just isolated people living in cabins in the woods, there wouldn't have been a plague to begin with or <laughs> a pandemic to begin with as that we'd all be isolated in our little, our little cabins. That was the uh, Unabomber's, uh, <laughs> that, was, that was his philosophy, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, you know, kind of along that line, you know, I live out in the country, uh, and I've not really felt the effects of this as probably as acutely as people who are in the city, people who are in an apartment or something. You know, people who in those situations probably are feeling much more cabin fever, uh, just uh, stir crazy, so forth. I can go outside and take a nice walk around my three acres, you know, uh, get out in the sun and whatever. I'm planting my garden. I'm doing these different things. Um, maybe that's an argument living in the country. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but maybe, maybe that's a problem as well, you know, in the sense that I'm not attuned to the needs of a person who's sort of in a, an apartment complex in the middle of the Bronx. Like when I drive into New York City and I go through the Bronx, you guys have been down that way, you know, going down 95 into, into Manhattan. When you get to the Bronx, I mean, you see mile after mile of high rises into the distance. It's like out of a science fiction movie. You know, as far as you can see, you know, you're, there are tens and hundreds of yeah. thousands of people living in those things. What must it be like for them? Yeah, apartment. what must it be like for them right now? Yeah, well, that's where you're also seeing the largest spreads, Brooklyn, Queens. Um, you're seeing, the, you know, the largest spreads. And yeah, it's, it's yeah, it, I mean, it, it, you know, there's, there's so many things that, you know, the other shows we've dealt with and the kind of things we've been on to about, you know, the questionability of certain kind of forms of life and the way, and, the, and, and this is a case at which it, it reveals the kind of way in which finitude is matched by you know the reality um, of 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 things, and so here we are. We're starting to see those places impacted in ways that other places are not, and and things like that. And, and that's going to be a very different ministerial question, I think. Um, I have a different, you know, I'm in West Hartford. I mean, it's it's I'm on the slower side, <laughs> um, but still, um, it's here. 
you know, and it is here and it's growing here. It's going to grow here. And, and it does have, I mean, people have, or, I mean, I've, I see people driving, you know, walking around with masks on their face and stuff, and there's not so many people out. And so, you know, you're gent, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've lost this kind of mad rush of people. On the other, the people that are out, you tend to have more of an empathetic relationship with, you know, I mean, the world in a weird way is going through something at once. That's, you know, I think technology has, that's another thing about technology. That's almost worth doing a show on is, you know, we're, we're sitting at a moment in time in which the world is almost experiencing together something all at once through technology. Um, you know, other generations experienced it in their own place, their own culture, their own form. We're still doing that, but because technology has lifted us to a different place. I mean, I know what's going on in Italy and I know what's going on in Spain, you know, Someone in Ireland years ago affected by something may not have any clue of most of that. It just showed up in their neighborhood and that was it. And then how, what does this, you know, what does this mean too, you know, and, and what is the significance? And, um, and then how do we have a ministerial outreach that is both particular local or neighborhood, but also we can, we can reach our hand into other pockets of the world and be a neighbor in ways we couldn't be. So there's a lot of questions this, this kind of raises. Yeah, one of those things, you know, as a pastor, you know, our church functions on a on a face to face sort of, you know, proximity basis. You know, that's how local churches work. And I've been a a, a strong advocate over the years of uh, the primacy of uh, that. Uh, one of the things that has re- kind of repelled me. Sorry about the guys on the motorcycles in the background. There. So we don't even have that here yet. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> but what, yeah, I live in an area where I deal with that, and I deal with gunfire every day. <laughs> there, are, I, I live in a part of the part of the. This might surprise people who are listening to the show. I live in Connecticut, but I live in a part of Connecticut where people are you, uh, are doing a target practice. I'm not exaggerating. Every day, I've got neighbors who target practice every day. <laughs> Freaks my dog out. But anyway, getting back to my point. You know, you know, for me, uh, I have two lives. I mean, I've got my, my face-to-face sort of world, the people that I, I see on a regular basis, and both of you are part of that. But you're also sort of, in a, in a paradoxical way, a part of my other life, which is my virtual life. You know, I, I'm interacting with people around the world. I just got a, a note today from, from Warsaw, Poland, a guy who's listening to my YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, telling me what he thought about it and so forth. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. But in my, in terms of my, the people that I, that I interact with on a face-to-face basis, if I were to say that they would just, their eyes would glaze over. They wouldn't understand what I was talking about. They wouldn't know how to relate to it. They might even think that I was sort of bragging or something, it was, but it's, it's not, it's not about that. So I live these two lives. So one of my lives has been, has not been interrupted at all this virtual technology life is actually expanded. Whereas the proximate, you know, sort of life of, you know, human contact has completely sort of, sort of been reduced to my wife and my daughter at the moment, not even my, my son and my daughter-in-law who live three miles away. You know, we're not even, we don't even see them, you know, face to face. So it's weird. It's just really weird. One of the things that I've got to figure out what to do with this, I'm in touch with a guy via Facebook whom I've never met personally, but he's living in the Philippines. Hmm. And 
He runs a ministry there. That's why we connected. But he makes his living basically going around collecting trash and finding things that can re be recycled. Hmm. They're under an absolute quarantine. He can't go out. He, and he tells me, I don't have enough food for my family to live out this, this quarantine. And, you know, he's appealing to me for help. Now, I'd love to help the guy, but I've looked into it. There isn't any good way that I can find to get money to anybody in the Philippines. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, I've got a friend who actually runs a business where it's an import. He imports things from the Philippines. Okay. And he got his last shipment in and sent the money to the guy. But because of the quarantine, the guy can't even go collect the money. So what do you do under these circumstances? How do you help? What exactly is my responsibility here? And how do I begin to meet it? I don't even, I, I don't even know where to start on this one. You know, so it, in a sense, our world is expanding, but at yeah. the same time, it create, that creates relationships that I would like to engage in, but the limitations imposed on me make it impossible even to see that this guy's kids get fed. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, that it does open up a whole new set of complexities for the church. And how do you work that out? Do we, you know, is there ways to have outreaches to any churches there? Do those churches have connections to any churches here? Is there a way, you know, these are the kind of questions I think that this, you know, the moment that, the shape of the moment that we have asks these questions. And you're right, that immediate particular need has to be addressed. We have to find ways to do it. They may not be within our, our reach, but they definitely open the door to ways of finding avenues to address them. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another thing, you know, they, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind when, you know, you're talking, we have now a global reach through technology into things and ministry spreads beyond our house and our neighborhood. I mean, we need to be there. We need to do that. But there's also this world in which we, we are we're reaching into neighborhoods all around the world. And this is the time we've been given. So what do we do with it? How do we, how do we, connect with the church in its widest sense, Christians in the widest sense, and use the wisdom we've been given by God to to minister into these places that otherwise we have no reach. I mean, I don't have reach, you know, I can't put an arm in there, and, mm -hmm. and yet I want to help, and yet maybe providentially there are, you know, there there's a, a stream of things that are in place to start addressing that. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we're going to discover if this continues is kind of the tipping point yeah. or, you know, when, when uh, civil disobedience is in the interest of people, as opposed to being, you know, uh, against their interests. Like at the moment, I, I, I think that cooperating with the authorities is in everyone's interest. Yeah. Um, and, but if this were to go on for like six months, 
there'd be a, <laughs> yeah. there'd be a point where we'd say, you know what, you know, it, it's just not working. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just need to get out there and do what I can or whatever, you know. But I think where I'm, kind of, we where I'm of, from in the south, kind of that, they, they'd be like, you know what, <laughs> I'd rather die than be stuck in the house. <laughs> well, there'd like be, this. yeah, there'd <laughs> be that. But I, but I also think there would be just a sense of like, okay, that's enough. You know, yeah. we're just going to play this thing out, and we're just going to do what we need to do. And that's going to uh, initially there'll be a kind of t- kind of like it'll, uh, an, a sense that maybe this isn't the right time, or maybe it is. But then there'll be like a sense. I would think of just sort of like a common sort of understanding that, you know, we got to do what we got to do. We're not anywhere near that. I mean, we're only about a week or two into this, but uh, you know, we're looking at, you know, in Connecticut, we're all in Connecticut. uh, We're according to the governor, according to the executive order, we're not supposed to have church until the end of April. Wow. You know, we're not supposed to meet. That's what, now they might revise that. There might be a change, you know, so forth. But that's what we're dealing with now, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting to the point where we should probably wrap this up. Um, anything you want to say in conclusion, Tom? Uh, no, great topic. I'm sure Glenn's got a lot more to say. I know he's uh, also uh, been working on this quite heavily. Um, uh, next week, I'm going to follow it up with a few different uh, themes. Um, they'll be related, but they'll go in a little bit of a different direction. Um, but they'll be continuous. You know, how do we raise the wisdom question for our time and the way in which we live out our faith? Um, but uh, no, I'm, we're we're pressing on. This is this has also been a first. Thanks for being patient with us. Um, you know, it's a little strange not being able to you know reach over and slap each other like we do each week. <laughs> but uh, maybe this will be posted. You can see us for once, so that's nice. <laughs> anything you want to say Glenn as we wrap up yeah I I, we'd originally planned to do to record this tomorrow um, which meant that I didn't have a beer on hand and so I do apologize Um, but uh, along with that one of the things that I think is also worth considering at some point is the issue that you raised what do you do when we can't meet in churches Um, there you know is a virtual church the equivalent under the circumstances of a real church, or ought we to be thinking about encouraging a kind of house church model, at least on a temporary basis, and providing training and equipping to help people do that? That's a whole different direction, though. Yeah, Yeah. right now in our church, we've been focused on helping families do family worship. You know, we provide a, a you know family worship bulletin, and we provide the, the sermon by one of our pastors. Uh, you know, in the form of a video, but uh, there might be a point in the future where we want to, you know, encourage families to get together, um, you know, who are maybe in a particular area. Um, But that's a bridge that we haven't arrived at yet, but maybe we'll get there. And if we do, we'll cross it. One of the things I'd like to do in the, in the future is I, I, I had a, I had a, uh, one of my uh, Facebook pals uh, asked the question, uh, would you be interested in, you know, addressing the theme in a particular book? And he raised, uh, he presented a book that was written by a fellow named Matthew uh, Dickinson, who is, a, is a, actually a person, someone I know who's actually spoken at my church on uh, environmental issues. And it has to do with Tolkien and uh, environmental issues. And so 
that might be something that I'll uh, work at trying to, to, to pull off. You know, he's up in Middlebury at the notorious Middlebury College. Folks may not know that they're actually there actually are Christians at Middlebury <laughs> College, <laughs> and they're good ones. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's up in Vermont. But maybe I'll, even I'll in work. the liter- literature department, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, but I'll work at, at, at seeing if I can get Matthew to, to join us. Anyway, well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate uh, your ongoing uh, interest in what we do and your support. Uh, if you are not yet a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We encourage you to join it. Uh, If you do join it and you want to support the work of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, you can actually designate uh, Theology Pugcast as your your beneficiary. And if you did that... using their pint mugs. Hey, there it is. There it is. Yes, there it is. (laughs) Uh, If you do that, we'd, we'd be grateful. Uh, we are a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. You might be listening to us maybe at Spotify or on Amazon, or uh, let me see, not Amazon, but on iTunes. We're not there uh, yet, right? <laughs> uh, or, or any other number. I think there, I think there are like about twelve different platforms that we're on. And uh, but if you uh, if you uh, would uh, consider and uh, downloading the app for your phone. For the Fight Laugh Feast Network, it, if you just go to uh, you know your you know your your app provider on on Android or on uh, iPhone, you can find the FLF or Fight Laugh Feast Network there and download the app. We're encouraging people to do that because we live in a day of of uh, deplatforming people or deplatforming programs, and who knows we might we might offend the gods at Google. <laughs> lowercase g you know at some point by something we say and the next thing you know we've been deplatformed well if you have the fight laugh feast app on your phone we have at least one more level of control over whether or not you can you know access what we have to say that you can hear us even in the worst of times <laughs> that's right that's right that's right so we encourage you to do that anyway thanks a lot for listening in we appreciate your support bye-bye Right now.